Let me pray uh, as we get into this passage. Uh, Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that my words will be pleasing to you. Help me to preach your word faithfully, that we might see your goodness and mercy, uh, but also our responsibility to do the work you have called us to do. Amen. If you are a Christian, uh, then there are going to be times in life when it just all feels too much. Uh, You might feel the weight of a very critical culture. It might be a family member uh, who wants to constantly point out how your faith is naive or how you're a hypocrite uh, or perhaps both. Uh, And at times uh, we can all feel like hypocrites. Uh, Or maybe it's less about external things and more about the internal. Uh, We're struggling with uh, physical pain or emotional pain and we feel abandoned by God. Or we're struggling with temptation. And in fact, we're struggling so much, we're wondering why we are struggling at all. The rest of the world doesn't seem to care that much. Uh, Why should we? And when you hit those moments, it's difficult uh, to think with any sense of clarity or conviction. uh, Which is why we need to prepare uh, for those moments before we get there so we can stand firm in the moment. And so in the passage that we read today, uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the future. And he wants to say to them, you're not alone, uh, you are not powerless, and whatever happens, remain in me. Uh, For those who would appreciate a quick refresher, uh, Jesus is with his disciples for his Passover meal, and this is the last meal they will share together before Jesus is arrested and then crucified. And so he's talking about going and preparing a place for them. But while he's gone, he wants his disciples to continue the work that he's been doing. Uh, So from last week we read, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the work I have been doing. And here we have a very similar idea, but this time in the form of an illustration. And so we have a vine and branches and we have fruit. And so our passage begins, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. All the way through the book of John, we've had these big I am statements. And those two words I am go way, way, way back uh, to when Israel were slaves in Egypt and God says to Moses... Tell the people, I am has sent you. And so now we have Jesus doing all the things that God the Father has been doing, rescuing and saving and bringing life to all who believe. And so when he says, I am the true vine, uh, the disciples would be imagining a grapevine, partly because that's the most common vine that has fruit, But more significantly, because the whole idea of grapevine uh, and a vineyard is a common theme right through the Old Testament. And it almost always refers to Israel, and it's almost always about Israel being a very consistent disappointment. Uh, So, for example, Isaiah 5. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower and in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. 
We were doing so well for so long until it actually comes to the point of producing what it should produce. But here we have uh, Jesus saying that he is the vine and he is going to achieve all the things that Israel never achieved for itself. So we are the branches and we are called to produce good fruit. And that's interesting because if we want to see God at work, then we need to start by looking at the fruit he produces. And that's a pretty humbling idea because he's now talking about us. Uh, God's greatest work right now isn't uh, miraculously healing people as an answer to prayer or even protecting us from bad things, although we're very thankful when he does. Uh, God's greatest work isn't the wonder of nature, even though it's wonderful and the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, The really and truly miraculous work is the fruit he produces in sinners like us, uh, that he would save us and transform us to be more like him. And clearly we are works in progress and yet he still perseveres. And so the wine produces fruit and the father, who is the gardener, comes out to his vineyard expecting to find good fruit. And when he comes, he will cut off all the branches that bear no fruit. And I think this is where the metaphor gets a little tricky because it sounds like he's saying that we're talking about people who were Christians, they were branch, uh, but now they've fallen away. They're no longer uh, a branch which kind of fits with our experience, but it doesn't fit very well with what we've read from John so far. And so, for example, John 16, Jesus says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. And even in this passage, just a little bit later on, Jesus will go on to say, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. So if God is the one who's choosing and if if whoever he chooses will not get driven away, then why do some branches fail to produce any fruit? And then why do they get cut off? And I think part of the answer is in Judas Iscariot. Uh, So he's been with Jesus for his whole ministry. He's seen the miracles, he's heard the message. So here is a guy who for all money looks like a branch and yet at that critical moment he will turn his back and betray Jesus. For all the talk, for all that participation, there was something fundamentally missing. I just sort of stay with the, the metaphor of our, of our branch and vine. There's sort of that, there's no inner connectedness. There's no, you know, sap flowing from the vine, from the trunk to the branch. There's no nutrition. And in the end, it's just dead wood hanging on. But there are points in time where you really can't tell the difference, can you? And certainly, you know, healthy branches uh, can look pretty gnarly at times. So uh, that's... That's a vine. That's a grapevine. And right there, it's not looking real pretty. Uh, But sometimes also branches can look pretty good for a moment. Uh, But in fact, they're diseased and dying on the inside and we just can't see it yet. And so in the end, the truth is found in the fruit it produces, but also in the fruit that it will continue to produce as we persevere. 
And so I reckon there's at least two types of faith uh, that look like faith, but in the end will turn out to be dead wood, unless something fundamental changes. Uh, The first is what I'll call uh, family affiliation faith. Uh, So this is where, you know, you grow up going to church, uh, you know the Bible stories, you know the message of the Bible, you know that Jesus is the one who calls us to follow him. And so we know it, but, but, they, but they never really own it for themselves. And so as time goes on, as, as life moves on, as they become more independent, they also move away from the faith that they, have, that they affiliated with, but never really owned. I think the other Deadwood faith is faith by association. Uh, where church and faith become a way of fitting in and feeling connected to something bigger than ourselves. And they genuinely embrace it with both hands. So they learn the language and the behaviours, they know how to fit in, they know how to participate. Uh, They're not deceiving anyone, Uh, they just buy in and and they feel it within themselves as much as anything. But in the end, it's more of an infatuation than anything that's lasting or meaningful. And so when relationships change, when the novelty wears off, there's really nothing left. There's no real connection to Christ beyond the relationships that they've been involved with. So if either of those scenarios are a little unsettling, then I think a helpful sort of test question for ourselves is, if you can imagine yourself where, uh, you know, you take, strip back your, your, your family affiliation, your family's no longer watching over you, or take away the relationships that you, you love within your, your church community. If all of that was gone, would you keep going? Would you continue to be a follower of Christ? And if the answer's no, or I'm not sure then that's a bit of a red flag, isn't it? That's something where you go, okay, I need to then go back and ask, well, why is that true for me? Why why am I not sure about this? What are the stumbling blocks that are stopping me from actually genuinely committing ourselves? And part of that will be praying that God can open our eyes. Help us to understand what's going on inside so that we can actually recognise it and then do something about it. So if Jesus is saying that the Father will cut off the dead wood, he's also saying that the Father will prune the good branches to bear fruit. You know, so often God sees more potential in us than we see in ourselves. But pruning uh, can look pretty brutal. Uh, The best wine, so here's another one. Uh, This is an old vine. And this is the, the type of vine where you get the best wine. Uh, But just after the season, once you've pruned it, uh, it looks pretty ugly. And certainly if you are a gardener, you will know that pruning can feel pretty brutal. You just keep hacking and hacking and hacking. But I mean, if you're a rose person, perhaps not a, you know, if you don't have vines, if you're a rose person, you go go back till it's a little stump and it looks very sad. Uh, But you know that that's going to produce the best roses in the end. Same with grapes and vines. Uh, But it does hurt. So sometimes that pruning is going to come as a result of sin. Uh, We do the wrong thing and we have to deal with the consequences. But we also learn uh, and that produces character and perseverance and faith. 
Uh, sometimes pruning is about resisting temptation. And the more we resist, uh, the more committed we become to resisting, the easier it becomes. Uh, sometimes pruning will come as a result of suffering, uh, where we face a chronic illness uh, or a struggling with mental health, and we need to trust that even in our suffering, uh, that God is for us. And whatever happens, our salvation is secure. And again, that perseverance produces character, but it also results in assurance, uh, because our perseverance testifies to the genuineness of our faith. It's easy to say we're a Christian when things are easy, uh, but the real faith is seen when things get difficult. And as we'll see later on, sometimes pruning will come as a result of persecution. You know, life is complicated. There is so much good, but also so much temptation and bad and so many things competing for our identity and time. Uh, But if we are followers of Christ, then all of those complications... We need to recognise that actually he's the source of life. Uh, He sets our purpose and our purpose is to bear fruit. And we're only going to do that if we remain. So verse 4, remain in me as I also remain in you. You know, the risk of mixing our metaphors, the encouragement here is a little bit like encouraging a marathon runner at the Olympics, okay? You're standing on the sideline, the runner is running past, and you're saying to them, you know, keep on going, you're doing well, don't give up. Now, you're not saying any of those things imagining that they're about to stop, okay? You're going, they're going to keep going, and I'm there to encourage them to keep going, And that's kind of what Jesus is talking about here, that if we are real branches, are connected to Christ, we will keep going. And the encouragement here is to keep on keeping on. And so, and the fruit that comes out of us keeping on is obedience. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And there's joy in this. Yeah, his commands put everything in their right place, how we should relate with God, how we should relate with one another. And his commands are summed up very succinctly for this passage in verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And very soon we'll see that love demonstrated at the cross. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I'm not sure what's more surprising in those words. Uh, His willingness to lay down his life or his willingness to call us friends. Because we're really, really bad friends. You know, despite everything God does for us, despite the, the wonder of creation and his goodness to us, we are so often neglectful. Uh, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And yet he still chooses to love us. He chooses to go to the cross and die for us, for our sin, so that we can have life. And when we acknowledge our sin and when we repent, then we know the freedom that comes with forgiveness and the peace and the comfort and the confidence that comes with knowing that we are loved. Uh, That's the love we've received And that's the love we're to show others. And in this context, he's talking about disciples loving one another. And so he sets a pattern for us. 
You know, love can express itself in a thousand different ways, uh, but if, uh, that would be quite a long list. Uh, so let me just go for four outcomes of love. And so here are four things. I think, firstly, love desires godliness, uh, even at the risk of friendship. Uh, and that means love will encourage, uh, but sometimes love will also rebuke and challenge. But the goal is that we will all grow in our love for Christ. I think, secondly, love leaves the other person feeling valued. Even when we have to say tough things, we should always know that it's coming from a place of love. It's not coming from a place of spite or hurt, uh, which is our temptation, but a desire for their godliness. Uh, with number three, and when love fails, uh, love seeks to reconcile and it actively pursues it uh, in the same way that Christ pursued us. And then lastly, love means standing together uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that love for one another is going to be important because as we stand together, uh, we're going to stand together in a world that hates us. Uh, so verse 18 and 19, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And I think uh, we are feeling this one more and more uh, because the power dynamic of our culture has changed. You know, at one point, our society was heavily influenced by our Christian heritage. Uh, then our culture became more pluralist, where lots of different perspectives kind of coexisted. And generally speaking, uh, people tried to convince rather than coerce. Uh, so as I was growing up, uh, my you know, promiscuous friends would know that we had different values when it came to you know, our view of sex. Uh, they had different worldview when it came to my opinion about uh, faith and, and my commitment to following Jesus. Uh, and we would debate that and we'd have conversations and sometimes they'd bag me out for it. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, there was still friendship. Uh, and there was still a rec recognition that we could have different views and still actually like each other. Uh, but increasingly, that sort of disagreement is becoming unacceptable. You know, anything short of unqualified endorsement is now becoming viewed as hate and dangerous. And dangerous things uh, need to be stopped and dangerous things need to be punished. And so right now, even though we're talking a lot about tolerance, uh, we're actually becoming increasingly intolerant of one another. And I think part of that, a significant portion of the conversation, is around these ideas of gender and gender identity and sex and sexuality. And so all of this is playing out in social media, it's playing out in the articles we read in, online and in the paper, it's playing out in our workplaces. Uh, sometimes it comes out as verbal abuse, uh, sometimes it will come out as social persecution or social isolation. Uh, for others, it will become an issue of economic persecution, uh, where people are losing their jobs or having their jobs restricted or losing job opportunities. Uh, sometimes for expressing their opinion, uh, sometimes simply for not endorsing the opinion that's there. Now, it kind of reminds me of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego when the trumpet sounds and everyone's to bow down. 
I feel there's a bit of that pressure in our culture right now. But of course, for our experience, it's, it pales in comparison to many people around the world uh, who are genuinely being beaten and imprisoned and perhaps even killed for their faith, for their conviction and their commitment to follow Christ. And Jesus is saying here, don't be surprised. Uh, they hated me and they will hate you. And just like today, the heart of the issue is sin. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but they now have no excuse for their sin. Uh, they sin by refusing to accept the lordship of Jesus. They refuse by, or, they sin by refusing to obey his commands. And so they hate the message, but they also hate us because we're the messenger. Uh, but whatever our circumstances, uh, we need to continue to love our neighbour and love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us. Uh, we can try to persuade, uh, but we can never coerce. And ultimately, the way we deal with our culture and the way we respond differently will actually speak an awful lot. Because we're not trying to persuade people of our values. We're trying to persuade people of the Lordship of Christ. When I was young, I used to do a reasonable amount of hardcore sort of bushwalking. Uh, and so when you're walking all day and you've got a full pack and it's the middle of summer and you're in Singleton, uh, there are moments in time when you can feel a bit despairing. And I reckon there's two things that keep you going. Uh, the first is uh, sustenance. Okay, food and, and particularly then water. So you need sustenance. Uh, the second, though, is company. Uh, it's the people around you. Uh, the people who... Sometimes it's verbal encouragement. Sometimes it's helping you, you know, with something very practical. It's a, it's a matter of action. Sometimes it's just their persevering and that lifts you so that you can persevere. Yeah, in this passage, we see both of those things. Uh, Jesus is the vine who provides sustenance. Uh, he's the one who saves and gives life. Uh, and it's by his spirit that he guides and strengthens. So when we feel weak, we need to come back to God's word. We need to come back to God's spirit and recognise that that's where we get our strength. Uh, but we also need to recognise that we've got a purpose for one another, uh, to produce fruit... Uh, that shows itself in a willingness to sacrifice ourselves for the good and for the godliness of the other person, uh, but also for their glory. Uh, so let's pray as we think about us as a community, how do we do that together uh, this week, the week ahead, the years ahead? Let me finish and pray. Uh, dear Lord, we do thank you for our fellowship together. Uh, we thank you for your spirit and we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that we will obey your commands and love one another. And Lord, help us to recognise how to do that well, uh, how to uh, do that sacrificially uh, for the good of, of our brothers and sisters in Christ and for their godliness. Amen.